Hello, guys. Come on in. Make yourselves at home, as you should when you're a guest in Bradley's house. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the executive director of the Knoll Family Foundation, our podcast guru here, Ms. Kelly Knoll. <laughs> Kelly, how are you today? I'm fabulous. Thank you, Jared. How are you? <laughs> Uh, personally, I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty good, Kelly. I can't complain. Good. You know, when, when things are good, they're good. And when things are bad, they're still pretty fucking good. Right. That's like, true. Right. I don't have much to complain about, but, um, we on have a much sad to be note, thankful for. Yeah. On a sad note, I did get a little bit of bad news today, though. And I just wanted to kind of take a second. Um, and people know that we talk so much about music and we have fun guests on here, but obviously we talk so much about recovery and, uh, the war that so many people are out there fighting right now. And, um, a childhood friend of mine, uh, Danny Christophus, unfortunately this week lost his war. And, uh, his brother Joey was, uh, somebody that has been incredibly close to me, like family, um, throughout my childhood. And getting that news today, um, was, was genuinely heartbreaking. And oh, I just wanted wow. to take a second and send some love out to, uh, to Joey and the Christophus family. And, uh, again, this is just something that was, uh, it was tough to hear and it's something that we have to deal with. And, um, I'm just thinking about those guys a lot and sending a lot of love out to them. And, uh, oh. before we got the show started, I just wanted to, uh, just wanted to say that I'm thinking about you guys. That's awesome. You know, it's so heartbreaking and sadly, um, you're not alone. You know, I get, I get messages from people constantly who've just gotten similar type news and it just, it breaks my heart every time because I know what they're feeling and addiction is such a thief and, um, you know, it robs, it robs the addict of the life that they could have had. It robs their loved ones and friends of, of the connection and the relationship that they could have had. And, and of course it robs the world of whatever contribution they would have made. And, um, I'm really, it's, it's those types of things that really spur me on to do what we're doing because it is such a big deal. It is such an important thing and it touches everybody in such a personal way. And there, there are very few people that have not been touched by a loss from an overdose or, you know, or something related to that. And so, uh, and, and sadly, I think we're just going to start seeing more and more of it. So, um, I'm really glad that we're doing what we're doing. And Jared, I'm very proud of you for being a part of this. And we definitely send our love to Joey and his family. Yeah, absolutely. And Kelly, you know, we, we've talked about it and let's make no mistake we're in the midst of a war right now and yes. the Knoll family foundation and Bradley's house is going to be, um, you know, one of the very, very small armies that are out there on the ground fighting this war. And you've said it a million times that it, it can't be done alone. And there's a lot right. of other amazing, uh, groups and individuals that are out there and that are doing what they can to, to help in that war. And we're all fighting together. And, uh, I think today's, house guests will help uh, shed a little more light on that. Right, Kelly? Absolutely. I mean, talk about great timing. We are super fortunate to have with us someone who is on the front lines of the solution of actually helping people making a difference. And um, it's, it's such a, a, I don't know, it's something that I truly admire because I can't imagine how difficult it must be to, to deal with the the, the heartbreak and the, the tragedy that goes along naturally with this type of work on a daily basis. And so I have the utmost respect for our guest today and people like him who, who do this kind of work. And, um, so I have to say how, uh, 
I was introduced to him, one of our board members, Tyson Sullivan, who I've mentioned before, he's such a great resource for the foundation. Because as you know, since we don't have the facility open yet, a lot of times we'll get requests from people that need help or they have a loved one that needs some immediate help and they can't wait until we get the money raised to open Bradley's house. So what we're able to do is have Tyson reach out to them and he helps them with some recommendations, you know, based on their situation. And, and I just find that to be such a phenomenal service that we we can offer, you know, in the in the meantime, until we actually have a facility of our own. So in the process of, of doing the work that he does in the recovery industry, Tyson had the pleasure of meeting our, our guest that we have today. And he told me about him afterwards. And I was so excited to have him on the show because their facilities sound very similar to what we're trying to do with Bradley's house. So I've never spoken with him before until, you know, right before this episode. So I'm super excited to learn more about it along with all of our listeners. Today we have with us the Vice President of Business Development for Recovery Unplugged in Austin, Texas, Joseph Gerardo. Thank you so much for being with us, Joseph. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be in the house. And you did a great job saying my last name. <laughs> I just wanted to give you props real quick. Thank you. We, yeah, we can tell everybody right before we started recording, I was super worried. Like, I want to make sure I say this correctly. So Joseph was kind enough to give me um, instructions on how to say it. And why don't, will you say it for us the correct way? Because clearly I, I did not say it perfectly. Uh, uh, it is Gorordo. Yeah, sounds so much better when you say it than what I do, but thank you for being patient with me. Okay, so Vice President of Business Development at Recovery Unplugged. Can you tell yeah. us first um, a little bit about Recovery Unplugged and, and what they do so that we have a frame of reference as we start talking about your involvement with them? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Recovery Unplugged is uh, an addiction treatment organization at this point. So we have four locations. We're in uh, South Florida, Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Northern Virginia. And we do detox, residential, PHP, IOP, like all the levels of uh, addiction treatment. And, you know, we really kind of have three core values to what we do. You know, one is that uh, recovery inclusion, right? We believe that all recovery is valid and it's all equal. So whether it's, you know, a 12-step program or Buddhism or yoga or, um, you know, medication-assisted treatment, any nothing is off the table when it comes to finding a unique way for somebody to get sober or to recover. Um, the The second thing is that we believe that no one just decides to be an addict, right? I know I just didn't decide to be an addict, right? Absolutely. So we, we believe in having highly qualified master's level therapists with a ton of different specialties, right? From trauma to LGBTQ issues to um, mental health, et cetera, so that we can get to the stuff that's behind the alcohol and the drugs. Mm. And then the third thing is, you know, we believe that music is medicine, right? Um yes. So we have taken music and all the benefits that we know that music has, right? From like lowering anxiety, connecting to memory, um, helping people process and have catharsis and emotions, et cetera, all that good stuff that music does for us, right? Taken that and implemented it in really every way that we could possibly think of <laughs> into awesome. addiction treatment. So from you know, there's something called a pre-screen that you do before you you go into rehab, right? You you answer right. a bunch of questions about your drug use and your history and all that to make sure you're medically appropriate. But then the last questions we ask were like, what's your favorite song? 
what's your favorite genre mm. um what's a song that makes you happy right mm. and so when someone comes into treatment whether we're picking them up at the van uh, in a van at the airport or if we're they're just coming directly into the facility and doing paperwork we play that music for them like mm. right when they arrive oh wow just, just to put them at ease and you know let them know we're listening to them but it's music is integrated into everything we do from start to finish so like when people discharge they have their own special custom little mp3 player with their like recovery playlists and all that cool stuff so um i get kind of excited about it when i talk i'm getting so excited hearing you like i feel like um you know recovery unplugged is what bradley's house wants to be when it grows up you guys <laughs> really have such an incredible program. And um, when when Tyson texted me uh, when he was out there meeting, he's like, you've got to come see this place. Like, it's so great. He was so excited because it's all the things that that were behind, you know, our, our impetus for wanting to start the Noel Family Foundation and open Bradley's house so that we could incorporate music, you know, specifically for people in the music industry yeah. as it mm-hmm. as it relates to them. But but because music is such a huge part of of our lives and such a huge part of so many people's lives and being able to incorporate that into the recovery process, I think is so powerful. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, did Tyson tell you about the moments that we decided we liked each other? No. (laughs) So he came out to see the place to see recovery unplugged and I was kind of showing him around and we were talking, you know, it's like, Oh, you're from Cali. That's cool. You know, whatever. I'm just chit chatting. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was showing him, part of the facility and he just grabbed a guitar that was sitting around and started playing the intro to bad fish oh <laughs> and without saying a word you know like he didn't say like hey do you, do you like sublime or anything like uh-huh. that he just started playing it and i started singing it oh we my just, gosh we just rattled off bad fish without any kind of preparation and like oh what a we, moment we were friends like immediately yeah. like connection <laughs> oh that's yeah, that'll so do cool. it yeah, that'll, that'll, do that'll do it. That'll that'll make a friendship. Kelly, I got to ask you, and I know hindsight is twenty twenty, and this is a, a difficult question for me to to even ask. But with everything, we've come so far in this war, and so many things have developed. Looking back, if any musician that we've lost, but specifically Bradley, if he would have had an opportunity to have a facility where it was music based and he could sit in there and play his music and we might not be sitting here right now, right? You know, it's, that's a hard one to answer, you know, because we could come up with a lot of what ifs, but it's all speculation. I would like to think that when a program like that is available at no charge for musicians in need who don't have the funding to get you know, a quality recovery program, I would like to think that that will improve their outcomes. I really do. And I think, honestly, I think it's too hard for me to kind of put myself back and go, oh, if only, you know, if he'd had this, if he'd had that, it's hard to say because there's so many variables, you know, he, he did go um, into several programs and, and never stuck with them. And it wasn't the fault of the program, you know, because obviously sometimes it works for people and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's the methodology. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're just not ready. I mean, there's just too many variables. But what, what I think is the important thing to focus on is that can this help people in the future? Can this help avoid a loss in the future? And I think it can. Will it help every single person? No. I think that's, that's, um, you know, we have to be realistic, but can it increase their chances of, of sticking with the program, of staying clean, of, 
you know, of transforming their life in a positive direction, I think it can help increase those odds. And that's what really, really motivates me. And, you know, the, the program that, that you guys have, Joseph, is, is so, and, and I just have started, you know, like researching on the website and talking with Tyson and stuff. There's so many things that you guys have done, as you said, to incorporate it in so many different aspects of, of treatment. How did that all start? Where did that all come from? So the, so I joined Recovery Unplugged after it existed for, uh, I want to say three or four years. So I, I have the third, fourth, fifth hand accounts of how it all went down. Um, but the story goes that there was this guy, Paul Pellinger, who uh, is one of our founders and he had worked in addiction treatment in South Florida for decades, right? He was just like a recovery guy down there, worked in big Mecca for recovery in South Florida. Absolutely. And he, as uh, when he was working as a clinician, has started to use music in different ways. Um, and what he found was that, you know, with like the toughest cases, you know, with the, you know, he tells a story about this guy who'd been in prison for 10 years that he was trying to help kind of reincorporate into society. Right. And the guy refused to talk to him ever. And finally, like through a song, they connected. But point is, you know, Paul had this idea to like, take the little bits of music that you would see in treatment centers, right? Because most treatment centers have a guitar lying around or have a music therapist come in once a week, or um, there's a great organization up in in California, the Rocks Recovery Guys, you know, they they go out. Yeah, Wes Gear is on our board, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Wes, great dude, you know, so they go out and do like a session once a week or once a month at a facility, right? And the idea was, you know, there's clients that hate everything about treatment. They hate their therapist, they hate their peers, they hate the meetings, they, you know, they hate right. the food. But then, <laughs> you know, but when the music group would happen once a week or whatever, they would, that's what they would vibe with, right? Mm-hmm. So Paul wanted to make it into a treatment center. He had this idea that he carried around forever. And he met um, a guy named Andrew Sawson, who he jokes that the reason he decided to open a rehab is because he was tired of paying for his family members to go to rehab. <laughs> And so the two of them got together and uh, started Recovery Unplugged. Well, they actually started a program. It was called um, Harmony Recovery, which is not Mm -hmm. as good of a name. No, it's not. No. (laughs) It's clever. They were trying. Yeah, they were trying. But so at the same time that they were getting ready to open Harmony Recovery Center, there was a guy named Richie Supa. And Richie is uh he's steven tyler's best friend he's been a touring guitarist with aerosmith um helped write a bunch of their songs uh won a grammy for that song pink when aerosmith uh-huh. made their comeback in the 90s um and so richie had been clean for like 30 years and he's you know been alongside steven for his recovery journey and uh so richie like people do when they retire he moved to florida and he started going to rehabs <laughs> playing music and just, you know, giving Aww, back by, by right. doing that. And he called it recovery unplugged. And ah. so all those paths crossed and, you know, the rehab called harmony that was using music met Richie, the guy with the cool name that was also <laughs> using music. And they were like, okay, we can help each other out here. And so Richie joined the team and that's when it became oh, recovery unplugged. That's awesome. And four States. Four states, yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, 
it's been really cool though because i've been with the company since i helped open austin and nashville oh and uh seeing the way you know the right people find their way to us right like you were talking earlier about how like it's hard to say if this would have helped brad or if anything could help anybody right um you know we're the people who need what we do tend to find their way to us, you know, mm-hmm. and I've, I've heard so many stories from clients of like, you know, I've been to 20 different treatment centers and um, I like to tell people that we're, we're for square pegs that people have been trying to fit into round <laughs> holes, you know, yes. um, we, we, we <laughs> tend to be kind of a ragtaggy kind of misfit group of <laughs> um, My favorite. Not, not only clients, but like the team. Yeah. Know? Awesome. That's real. It's genuine. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I love it. I I don't plan on having another job after Recovery Unplugged. I don't think I could work anywhere else at this point. How did you get connected with them? Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt her. No, no, no. Go ahead. That's perfect. Yeah. How did you get connected with Recovery Unplugged? So it's actually kind of a cool story. I was working at a treatment center here in Austin and was burnt out. You know, I was I was really tired. I wasn't finding joy in my work. Um, the place I was working was very old school recovery. You know, mm-hmm. um, very like old school twelve steps. And and I'm not knocking those things, but sure. Um, at that point in my career, like my views on recovery had kind of grown a little bit, and I was just I was frustrated, right? And I was getting ready to leave the recovery treatment industry and like everybody else in Austin, right? Learn how to Mm. program and go be a coder, right? Um, And I stumbled across, I met a guy named Jeremy who had just moved from Florida to Austin to open this new music rehab. And he came up and introduced himself to me. And he told me that it was because I have have a little bass cleft tattoo behind my ear here. Uh And he said, he saw that tattoo and he was like, that guy, that guy'd be into what we do. (laughs) <laughs> and and so he came and he approached me and he offered me a job and I actually turned the job down three, maybe four times. Wow. Because, you know, I knew I was not happy working in treatment yeah. anymore. And Jeremy, you know, the last time he called me, he was like, look, bro, like we're not open yet in Austin. Why don't you fly out to Florida? Go see what we do. We'll cover everything. And if after you go out there, you say no, then I'll leave you alone, right? And I was Seems like, okay, fair. whatever. I'll take a free trip to Florida, right? <laughs> you like, know, dummy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I fly out to Florida with no intention of taking the job, none. Um, but they put me up at a hotel on the beach. You know, they took me wow. to a nice dinner, a little nice lunch. And I'm They're like, romancing this is, you. This is great, you know. But, um. But still, not. I didn't want a job. I, w- I didn't want to do it. But then I sat in on a group, and um, it's a group called Feel Good Friday that Richie does every Friday out there in Florida. And um, so, and and I'm a licensed clinician, right? So when the clients come walking into this group, I'm looking at the clients and just kind of noticing how they carry themselves, right? Like, do they seem happy? Just how do they, you know, what's their vibe? And this one guy walked in with a with a with a muscle tee you know with like the cut off sleeves yeah. and his shoulders were all squared up and his head was shaved and his face was very stern and he walked in and sat in the very back row of group and crossed his arms and like 
as a clinician, I think anybody, right, could look at this guy and say, sure. like, everything about him is screaming, like, leave me alone. I don't want to be here. Don't yes. talk to me. Like, go away. And so I found him very interesting, right? I'm like, how's he going to handle this, like, little happy-go-lucky kumbaya uh, <laughs> group that they're about to do? <laughs> and so Richie starts talking, and he plays this song called Enemy that is about being his own worst enemy, right? And as he's playing the song, I'm watching this guy in the back row and, you know, about a minute into it, he starts leaning forward about halfway through it. Like his, you know, he's got his head down and he's got his face in his hands. And by the end, you know, you can see his shoulders going that this guy, this guy's sobbing in the back row. Oh gosh. And, you know, Richie notices this as well and kind of says to him, you know, like, Hey, you know, what, what just happened? (laughs) Right. And the guy says, you know, it's just, I realized like, I'm not just my own worst enemy. Um, right before I got here, you know, me and my best friend overdosed in a hotel room. Oh, gosh. Um, I was revived and he wasn't. Oh. And, and, and I was sent to treatment. And, oh gosh. And it's, it's a horrible thing, right? That's um, heavy. It's heavy, but that opened up a conversation for the group where they started talking about loss and survivor's guilt, right? Just the way he was beating himself up. And we got into some of the heaviest stuff that you can talk about in clinical groups. And we were doing it within 10 minutes of group starting. And it was centered around the guy that wanted to be there the least. And I got goosebumps and I was just like, okay, I'm in, you know, I, I have to be a part of this. Yeah. It open music touches people and opens people up in a way that, that nothing else can. I mean, it, it cuts through armor, you know, yeah. it can catch you by surprise, right? We've all had those moments where like, you know, the right song comes on in the grocery store and all of a sudden you're thinking about people and places and things you hadn't thought about in years, <laughs> right? Um and so that's that's what it is. That's what we yeah. use. That's how, um, but that's, and that's how they got me. Right. Like I saw the music and, and, wow. and I was like, okay, I'm in. That's phenomenal. So you started with, with them. How long ago was yeah. that? Um, I just celebrated five years. Wow. Oh my it goodness. It is the longest job I've had in my life. <laughs> that's impressive. Very yeah. good. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your background, your, your recovery story, if you don't mind. Um. Yeah. So, I, uh, you know, I grew up in South Texas in Laredo, Mm -hmm. which is a a border town and, you know, border towns tend to be places where you can find drugs easily and, uh, high quality and cheap. Um, and so, you know, growing up, uh, my parents got divorced early. Um, my mom was a teacher and so she worked really hard and sacrificed to send me to a, to a private school. Mm. Um, so I was the poor kid at the private school mm-hmm. and, you know, one of the only kids that had divorced parents and, you know, didn't have a dad around to teach me like, you know, dude stuff, like, yeah. like how to throw a football, how to play basketball, that kind of stuff. So, um, I always felt very other, right. Yeah. Like I always felt like I didn't fit in. Um, and, uh, well, I was always an escapist, right? Like before I had drugs, it was books. You know, I was like that weird kid that would bring a book to school and just read <laughs> in the back of the room. Um, and and I, and I was reading stuff that like, you probably shouldn't be reading at like nine, 10 years old. You know, I was reading like Stephen King books and- Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I was like attracted to the dark side always. I was always kind of an escapist. Like the, the point of the reading was to avoid feeling. Of course, you know? yeah. Uh, and then, you know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't books, it was TV or it was food or whatever, right? Anything mm-hmm. I did, I always did too much of. Yeah. And then um, I had my first drink when I was about 10, 11 years old. Um, just kind of, you know, sneaking booze from, you know, family members with liquor cabinets and stuff like that. Mm. And then the first time I smoked pot, I was probably uh, 13, maybe 14. And I actually, I stole it from my dad. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I took a corn cob pipe from my grandpa uh, and I took oh, no. some weed from my dad. <laughs> and... I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have anybody to show me how to smoke weed. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There were seeds and stems. It was bad. (laughs) Um, But uh, you know, the first time I drank and the first time I smoked weed, it wasn't like in what most people think of, right? There wasn't like an older kid showing me. There wasn't like a peer pressure thing. (laughs) It was just me trying to change the way I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so uh, you know, as I got older in high school and stuff, like, you know, my access grew and to where, you know, by the end of high school, I was, you know, I was the stoner kid in school. I, I almost didn't graduate high school because I had failed my uh, one of my electives, which was yearbook, which is. Oh, gosh. Which is How a do you very fail challenge- yearbook joke. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, That's uh, an easy A right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It, it was actually kind of punk rock because part of the yearbook <laughs> class is you have to go sell ads for the yearbook, oh. right? Like in the back of the yearbook. And I thought that that was a, a capitalist idea that I shouldn't have to do. <laughs> Where was this class for me? <laughs> right. That, Jared would have been perfect for that. He could have sold enough for everybody in the class. The sales yeah. class? They were teaching me how to do math. What the fuck school did you go to? <laughs> See, private oh, school. Man. It's all about the private yeah. school education. And th- and things are different on the border, right? Like the borders, it, it's not the U.S. and it's not Mexico. It's its own thing. Mm. Um, it's just a different <laughs> world, man. Um, but so then, you know, I, okay, like the escapism, the always feeling different. And I also always had this thing of like, I wanted to like get to the next thing already. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I wanted to be bigger than I was and more ahead of where I was. So like, I graduated high school and within six months, like I had moved out of my mother's house to get my own apartment. Um, I was dating a stripper. I was selling cocaine, like 18 years. You were old. living the dream. <laughs> I, I thought I was, you right. know, like. It really is every mind, 18 year old guy's dream. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, like I was living like a movie star and sure. all, all the other kids that like went to college. And- Those chumps. Yeah, they were suckers. They, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> um, you know, but like it got dark real fast, you yeah. know. Um, when I was like, the, you know, being the first person in your friend group to have their own apartment means that the party comes to you. Absolutely. Right? So I never went without. And it also meant like, you know, uh, the less desirable element is gonna, you know, they're looking for a free place to crash and do drugs. Sure. Too, so yeah. that stripper so the, girlfriend probably kept lots of friends around too. <laughs> yeah. That didn't hurt. <laughs> I'm sleeping at Joe's tonight. <laughs> yeah. Never yeah. hurts. 
it was, you know, I threw a party. She came over. She never left. That's just the way it went down. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, uh, like I said, it got dark real fast, right? It went from like ecstasy and shrooms and pills and to like cocaine and heroin and crack real fast. Ouch. And, um, you know, I started experimenting with, with heroin with my, my best friend uh, at the time. And we were both 18 and we, uh, you know, we would do it once or twice and then like, okay, we're not going to do it again for a week because we're not going to get addicted. Right. We had plans and systems for not getting addicted. Because you're smarter than all those other addicts. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, We we don't want to be like that. We're just trying to party, you know? Yeah. Um, And, you know, one day we were trying to not do heroin by, we decided we're going to take Xanax instead. Right. And, uh, she went home and scored some dope and, and overdosed and died, you know, and oh, uh, we were, gosh. we were both 18 years old. Oh, I'm so and, sorry. Uh, yeah. I mean, real quick, you know, like I realized that I was not, a, I was not, I wasn't, can I cuss on here? Yes. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I I we do it often. A, Okay, I realized I wasn't a fucking grown up, you know, and I yeah, had no idea exactly. what I was doing, and I was yeah. in way over my head. And, um, but what happened is in a small town like Laredo, Texas, right? When, when everyone knows your best friends with the girl who died, nobody wants to come over anymore, you know, oh, like man. you, you become a pariah. Yeah. But you know, who did was willing to come over was the other heroin addicts, of course. And so that, that started off, you know, six years of addiction where, you know, till I was 24 years old, it was, you know, everything you can think of, right? Like, you know, homeless living in my car, getting arrested, snatching purses, uh, pawning stuff, breaking Mm -hmm. into my mom's house, um, all, you know, going to rehab, getting out of rehab, you know, relapsing, going back to rehab, all that stuff. Um. Uh, I got sent to Mexico to go to rehab for a year out there mm. and, and rehab is very different in Mexico. Oh, bad. So I'll just say that. And, uh, you know, I just spent six years trying to get off of heroin and, you know, the, the goal was never to be sober. Right. My goal right. was like, I wanted all the bad shit to stop happening. You right. know, I wanted just- to stop getting arrested. I wanted to stop being homeless. Yeah. You just want to go back to having fun and partying. Yes. Yes. I wanted to get that back. Like smoke a little weed, you know, uh, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the last six months that I was using, I had, uh, I, I, I achieved that dream, Kelly. I, you know, I had a job, I was going to college. I had two different girlfriends my family thought I was sober. I was going to 12 step meetings, picking up chips, saying I was mm-hmm. sober and like nothing bad was happening. And I was still shooting dope. Mm. Um, and so I was like, Oh man, like I did it like the dream. But in reality, like I still hated myself and didn't right. want to wake up in the morning and would go to bed praying, like, don't let me wake up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a and rough place to be. Yeah. And like, that was, that was my bottom, like that emotional realization of like, you know, this, I'm never going to be okay. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it wasn't all that other stuff that people think of as bottoms, right? Like people dying, people getting arrested. It was, it was that emotional understanding of like being totally alone and totally miserable and the drugs wouldn't even work anymore, you know? Yeah. And feeling like it would never change, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just that, that cycle, right? Like wake up, hustle money, get drugs, do it again. Wow. I think it's almost the, you know, when you're young, like you were, it's like that lifestyle almost seems glamorous, right? Like you just, you picture it's like every day's a rock and roll party and everyone's laughing and shooting champagne all over each other and <laughs> passing drugs around. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it's a great time. And I think the part that everybody misses out on is the part that you were talking about, the homelessness, the, the, the stealing purses. And we've had so many different guests come on here and, and tell their story. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like, fuck that just sounds horrible like there's nothing at all that is fun about that and you're not the first guest to say and the drugs weren't even working anymore i wasn't even having fun i wasn't i wasn't catching a buzz um it's just it's so crazy to think how fast it happens yeah absolutely and you know and the thing is like you know i think what happens is like, there's a couple of like really amazing stories and moments in all that, that like you latch onto, right? You're like, oh man, there was that one night that X, Y, Z happened, right? And that was a great night, but you blank out like, you know, cause most of the time the party was, you know, eight people sitting on a couch with a TV on mute, you know, just staring at the wall, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and every once in a while, someone would be like, I'm fucked up. And that was, that was the party, right? That was partying and and it's, it's it's miserable. It's miserable. Um, So what finally changed? Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to the good part. right? (laughs) So, you know, the, the last time I went to treatment, um, so, you know, I I mentioned that like my mom thought I was sober and like my family thought I was sober. Right. Right. And so, one day it was a Sunday. I remember this. I, you know, I went, I told my mom, I was like, look, my, I relapsed. Like I'm going to go to rehab tomorrow. Just, I need 20 bucks. You know, like I need you to give me money so I can go fix. Mm. And which I had never done before. Right. And, you know, my poor mother, you know, she, she gives me the money and I go do what, you know, what I needed to do. And I get back and she's like, here, you need to talk to this guy. He's at this rehab. You know, he's going to ask you some questions. And this guy, you know, I I go through all the questions. He says, okay, you know, we have a bed for you. We'll see you tomorrow at noon. And, you know, it kind of clicked for me. Like, okay, I guess I'm going to rehab tomorrow. So, uh, so I was like, I might as well go pawn something. (laughs) So I grabbed a guitar and tried to sneak out of my mother's house to go pawn it. And my mother saw me as I was backing the car out of the driveway and she ran out and threw herself on the ground in the middle of the street to keep me from leaving. And yeah. And my mom is a a very proper Hispanic woman that like, you know, in the way she was raised was like, you don't, everything is private. Family business Mm -hmm. is not meant to be discussed. Like, and the worst thing can be is to be shamed in front of like, your peers, right? Sure. And so she's in the middle of the street in our neighborhood that we've lived in for 20 years. And she's like ugly crying, like 
It's not dripping, screaming, like, please don't go. If you go, you're going to die. I know it. I know oh, it. Gosh. And I was so deep in my addiction that I was, I looked at her laying on the ground on her knees and was just like, give me more money then, mm. you know, like, and I didn't feel bad about it at all. Yeah. Um, so that was, that's always stuck with me as like, you know, uh, a moment to remember. Yeah. And, and, you know, the good part is that was the last time I saw my mom cry, you know? Awesome. Um, And that was the addiction talking. And I think people who are listening to this that can relate to that, I, I, I I want them to understand that that's, you know, obviously that you hold on to that as an important shift, an important moment in your life. But that was the addiction. That wasn't you. That was, you know, and it, and that's what's such a bitch about addiction is that it, it makes you do things that you wouldn't normally do and, and treat people ways that you would normally treat them. And, you know, and, and it's, and that's got to fuck with your head because you start thinking, yeah. maybe I am a shitty person, <laughs> maybe, but Absolutely. you know, but that's not it. It's, it's just what this addiction is doing to you. And, um, and I like to make that distinction because I do think that for so long there was the stigma associated with addiction that, you know, well, that was your choice. You yeah. know, you made that decision. Yeah. You made Why that choice. You just quit? Right, right. And so maybe that's who you are, but that's not it. And, and unfortunately, when there's so much um, guilt and shame heaped onto people that are, are struggling with addiction, that it, it makes it that much harder to recover. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And the last thing you need is one more, you know, one more roadblock. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you point that out because I, there was, there was a powerful moment for me the last time I was in treatment where I was, I was talking to my therapist and and I I don't remember what we were talking about, but I looked at her and I was like, you don't understand. Like, I'm just an asshole. And Mm. she, she said, who told you that? I don't think you're an (laughs) asshole. And, and, and I was like, oh, you don't know. And she's like, no, really, who told you you're an asshole? And I thought about it and it's like me, you know? I was the only person running that narrative of like, mm. you know, you're, you're a piece of shit. Like you're an asshole. Like look what you did to your, your family, your mom, um, that, that stigma. Right. And that right. shame of knowing, you know, just how horrible you've been as a human. Uh, it keeps a lot of people stuck, you know? Yeah. So, so if people, like if there was somebody who does get called an asshole a lot by other people, does that mean that they are asking for a friend? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, know I think you're just misunderstood, Jared. That's all. All right. Okay. Thanks. Well, it's that, it's that old thing, right? Like if, if you're driving to work and someone cuts you off, it's like, oh, you saw it. There was an asshole, you know, but like yeah. if you continue to see assholes all day, maybe you're the you're, asshole. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're just looking in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> So, Joseph, obviously, Recovery Unplugged has a um, a, a certain patient that yeah. is that is perfect for that for that program. And again, there's a ton of different programs that work, but you guys are obviously targeted for I don't want to say targeting, but you guys are serving and helping a certain a certain patient. Who is that? Well. I think that's the beautiful part of, of Unplugged, right? Because most people hear about what we do and they're like, oh, it's rehab for musicians, right? And it's like, well, no, not really. Because um, what we use from music is the way like humans respond to music, right? Like 
like science, like this is what your brain does when you hear music. Um, but so it, so it's really broad, you know, we, we get everything from like the 65 year old, uh, retiree to the 17 year old, uh, artsy heroin addict kid that just got out of high school. Right. Um, but you know, we, we seem to do our best work with people who are strong-minded and have kind of challenged traditional treatment ideas. You know, they've been to rehab before. They've heard kind of, you know, your usual spiel about triggers and thinking errors and powerlessness. Um, we do really well with, you know, creative types. And we just we just do good with, like I said earlier, you know, square pegs and round holes, right? People mm-hmm. that, for whatever reason, don't quite fit into what I'll call your mainstream recovery model. Um, those are our people. Like those are the people that get to us and the lights come on and they say mm. that they couldn't have gotten sober anywhere else. Um, wow. Those are our people. Um, uh, I'll tell you all a quick story. You know, when we first opened in Austin, we'd been open for about a month and we got a call it was a, a a young lady who was trying to get her dad into treatment and he was he was 63 years old and we were like man i don't know if we're the place for this guy like he's you know he's a little older i don't know if he's gonna fit in around here and he showed up and he had a mullet and an iron maiden t-shirt with the <laughs> sleeves cut off and we looked at him and we we're like yes welcome home buddy <laughs> welcome home <I'm> on in. <laughs> So That's it's, awesome. it, it's hard to give you like a good definition, <laughs> but like when that person's in front of you, you know it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So there's a guitar behind you. Obviously you're yes. a musician yourself yes. and the yes. bass clef behind your ear and all that. Yeah. When did you start playing music? Um, I started playing music. I was about 10 years old when my grandfather gave me um, my first guitar. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was a mediocre, I've always been a mediocre, I've been, I was, I'm a punk rock guitar player. You know what I mean? So like a <laughs> mediocre at best. Um, and, uh, when I first went to college, I, I was majoring in music and I did classical guitar for a while, which, um, mm. now is like an adult with three kids and, and stuff. That's kind of more what I can make space for. Um, mm-hmm. is, you know, quiet classical guitar in the evening <laughs> by <laughs> That's myself. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, I uh, you know, in that in that apartment, that little crack pad apartment that I had, I, there was many a Sublime song played on mm. on actually neither of these guitars. <laughs> I was gonna be like this guitar. But I was like, no, the, no, the, that's I, not. <laughs> Well, I don't have any of those guitars. You could have said it was. We wouldn't know the difference. (laughs) I know, but I try to live a a life of honesty. Authenticity, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's well. That's cool. Yeah. So, what are you listening to? What are you listening to now? Now, obviously, there's no such thing as a CD player in a car anymore. But what are you? What are you listening to on your way into work in the morning? Um. Well. Today I was listening to a podcast, but um, wow. no, uh, you know I, I go back and forth. Um, I really like you know the early two thousands emo scene. I like mm-hmm. uh, eighty five to ninety four punk rock. Um, Such a specific year, ninety four. What happened? Um, ninety four is like uh, when Green Day blew up and all that stuff. Yeah, happened, you know, so more the like, pop punk. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, Green Day was cool up till Dookie. Dookie was the last good one. The Offspring was great until Smash. <laughs> like, that whole thing. Oh, Kelly. Uh, Smash. It's all good. No, like, Sm- room Smash for was everyone. the last good album. Smash oh. was the last good one. That's what I'm saying. They had some good um, stuff after that. Uh, I'm really eclectic, you know. Uh, uh, much like most people my age that are musician people, I, I'm into vinyl and buy mm-hmm. random vinyls. So, I've mm-hmm. been listening to... Uh, this reggae record somebody just recommended to me, Holly Cook. Oh, nice. Listen to that this morning. Um, and then, uh, you know, Sublime stuff is speckled in there just kind of always. Nice. Um, I'm one well, of those freaks that that puts their whole music library on shuffle. Yes. It doesn't have playlists. <laughs> yeah. So so we'll go, it, it'll, it'll go... <laughs> You know, Wu Tang, Jazz, <laughs> Sublime, Operation yeah. Ivy, like all back to back. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, it can no. it can feel a bit um, like multiple personalities. <laughs> oh, I think I think Kelly, I don't know. I'm 37. I don't know how old you are, but I think it's a generational thing of like you know, if you're above the age of 30, you just don't make playlists. It could be. It could be. I don't have time well, for Kelly's it. Well, Kelly's 29, I, so she wouldn't know that. Yeah. No, I'm going to be 51 in a couple of weeks. But no, I, I I have Spotify, and so I just like songs all the time, and then I just put my liked songs on shuffle, and I never know what I'm going to get. And I could be listening to Beethoven one minute and Slightly Stupid the next. You know, I mean, it's just like there's no in-between. It's just craziness. Yeah. yeah but I absolutely. like that. I like yeah. that variety. And um, um, yeah. so how did you first discover Sublime? How did I first discover Sublime? Um, you know, I was 11 or 12 years old when the self-titled album came out. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom would never let me buy CDs with the explicit content oh, yeah. warning on them, right? But uh-huh. the self-titled album had all that black and white uh, kind of <laughs> tattoo art on the edges. It camouflaged she, it. It camouflaged it. Um, but so, you know, 11, 12 years old, living in a small town, right? Like I heard, uh, I saw what I got on MTV and I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I'll buy that album. And it, uh, it was probably one of the first albums that I could just hit play on. Mm. Um, and, you know, knew every single lyric can play half the songs on the guitar. And, but like, and I think, a lot of kids my age did that, right? Bought that album and were like, oh my God, this is great. But I, I was always, you know, kind of a music nerd. And so like, I went deep into it, you know, I was like, okay, well, what else did they got? You know, okay, they got Robin the Hood. Okay. Um, 40 ounces to freedom. Uh, all the weird, um, you know, jaw won't pay the bills, the demo tape, uh, <laughs> all, all the live albums, all the, the rarities and obscurities and songs that, you know, uh, you know, the everything under the sun collection when that came out, you know, I don't know, like 2005 or something like, I love it all. Mm. Um, and, and honestly, you know, I, uh, I was talking to a friend, to a friend of mine about it today. Like you, I was always attracted to like the darker side of music. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of my other favorite bands at that time in my life was Everclear mm-hmm. and their first album, the singer sings a lot about his heroin addiction and i don't want to say that like music glamorized it but part of me was like this is that thing that they do you know right. or that they did right and and you know it it to me made it 
more acceptable, not more appealing, you know, mm-hmm. but more accept. I don't know. I don't know how to yeah, validated it. Yeah, it yeah. validated a little bit. Um, and uh, it, it's, you know, I don't know. It, it uh, like when I hear a song like Pool Shark, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, like that. That's that reality of addiction that we were talking about. Right. You know? Right. And like you think about like what it takes to write a lyric like someday I'm going to lose the war. Mm. in that song and i mean i get goosebumps right now just just talking about it like it's it's you know it you know bradley's one of those musicians that like i feel like i know him just because of how important the music has been in my life and when i first realized like wow like to take a pen and write that down and then record it in a song like that's a that's a dark place you know that but that's a place that I'm familiar with. And like you were talking about, right? Like millions of Americans know exactly what that line means. Right. For sure. And I'll tell you on, on the flip side, and I've, I've told it on this podcast many times is that because of hearing that song and understanding the story and the connection that I had with the music, it did the exact opposite for me. It made me say, you know what? I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to dabble. I'm not going to try. And as a lot of my friends started kind of breaking off into partying and, and doing that stuff, that was really a big reason why I didn't. It was because yeah. I felt like <clears throat> here's somebody that I have this incredible music connection to. And um, he, he hit that landmine and now I'm going to avoid it. I'm, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to follow the opposite of that. And, uh, mm. it's just, it's so crazy how, you know, different experiences affect people differently. And, uh, yeah. I've heard a ton of people say just like you, you know, well, it was in the movies, it was in the music, it, it glorified it, it made it end. Yeah. I, t- I totally see that a hundred percent. I can see how that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for myself, having it glorified like that showed me stuff like, fuck, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, on the flip side too, like sublime music has been there for like some like really beautiful moments in my life. Like sure. uh, my firstborn son, the first album he ever listened to in his entire life was 40 ounces to freedom. Oh, right? That's awesome. Um, oh. Or, um, you know, the well, that puts you up for a dad of the year award right it there. Really, right? That's good parenting. Yeah. That is good parenting. But like also, also the Marley medley, right? Like, you know, with, yeah. uh, you know, this Love train that. is bound for glory. Uh-huh. Builder refused. Like that song has gotten mm. through all kinds of things, yeah. you know, um, either listening to it or playing it myself, you know, seeing like saying those words, just, um, it's crazy, right? How, you know, even though Brad's been gone for for a long time now, like there's still people today, right? Like like literally today that are getting joy out of life and getting positive benefits from his music. Yeah. You know, and like how cool is it to have that kind of a, a legacy? You That's know? mind blowing. Yeah, it's mind blowing. Like that kind of impact on the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's there's still kids at Hot Topic right now. <laughs> <laughs> Rocking sublime shirts. Yeah, that's crazy. I remember the first time I went to a Target and they had the sublime shirts. I'm like, damn, they made it. Like yeah. when you're in Target, that's like so mainstream, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it ain't no Walmart. We're talking Target. 
Yeah, you know, music is is so powerful. In fact, I I do occasionally make a playlist, and I have one that I made that is all the the songs that were a part of my life at different times of my life. And it's kind of, some were ones that I was listening to at that time and others are ones that maybe are more current, but that, that speak to me about those things. And it's just, it's just really powerful to me that, that music can, can evoke so much emotion and, you know, whether it's, it's joy and excitement or, you know, sadness and tragedy, but, you know, and it's not like that for everybody. And it, that took me a while to, to figure out also that not everybody's that way, but, but a lot of people are. And, and the, I think the ones that do connect with music and continue to connect with music throughout their lifetime, they're, they're the ones that really, um, can, can benefit in, in powerful ways, whether it's, you know, making it a part of recovery or, you know, even just a part of, of therapy or just of everyday life. It's just such a powerful element that a lot of times, we take for granted because sometimes it's just always there, you know, yeah. in the background. But, but yeah. I, I do think it's an amazing thing to be able to have such an impact that, you know, Brad's been gone for 25 years. And like you said, people are still, still getting something out of that, still incorporating that music into their life and, and finding an importance in it and, and finding themselves in it. And that, that to me is just mind blowing. And, that's the part that I wish Brad was here to see about his musical yeah. career. The way that yeah. there's so many people like you that feel like you know him because of his music, because he was so genuine and authentic and raw and, and just putting it all out there. And um, that to me is his, his real legacy that he's connected with people in yeah. such a powerful way. And that well, I think would blow his mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, like what, <clears throat> what you just described, you know, having that playlist of like kind of different eras of, of your mm -hmm. life or whatever, that's actually a thing we do at Unplugged is we have Aww. clients do something called my life in song. Yes, uh, that's great. And like, you know, as they build that playlist, right. You know, you have to stop and sit and kind of reflect on yourself. Right. And yeah. think about like what, what was happening, you know, when I was 10, what, mm. what song, is part of that, you know, like you reflect and you look back, Yeah. but then, so it's a tool for you to like, look at yourself. Um, but then, you know, when you share it with your therapist and you share it kind of with other members of your group, it's a way for you to get vulnerable right? Uh, and talk about some, some real shit. Yeah. Um, but then, right. As you're sharing music, like, like when I was talking about with Tyson, right. When, when someone says like, Oh man, you know, when I was 13, my parents got divorced and, you know, the, you know, Metallica's Black album really helped me get through it, right? Mm -hmm. Someone else in that group is going to be like, Metallica? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and they're going to start having connections. Right. From that. Connections. From, yeah. From the music, right. Um, and it's so cool. Sometimes we have like, you know, these older cats and the younger dudes that like don't think they have anything in common. And then, you know, they bring up Sublime or they bring up mm. The Doors or they bring up yeah. Pink Floyd and all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay. All right, you're I cool. I get you like, now. Yeah. We can be, we can be friends now. <laughs> right? That's awesome. Um, yeah, because so, like that, that music's universal, right? It really is. It really is. And that's that's powerful. That's really powerful. So tell me about your family. You mentioned you have three kids. How old are they? Yes. Um, so I have an 11-year-old named Harper, a 9-year-old named Jackson, and a 3-year-old named Ella. Darling. Um, I know that song, man. Yeah, <laughs> I got, I, I got, I've got, I've got twelve, eight, and four. So, 
There we go. Yeah, we're right on track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's kind of cool that like I uh, I met my wife when I had forty five days sober. Wow. And I was about nine months sober when we found out she was pregnant mm-hmm. with our oldest. So I've got 13 years sober and Harper will be 12 in December. So wow. the, wow. the math checks out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at nine months sober, like just having learned to like handle my own life, you know, and like keep my job at the local Mexican restaurant for, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and like pay, pay rent and stuff like that. Um, and all of a sudden being like, okay, well, you're going to be a dad now. Like absolutely terrifying thing to experience in early recovery, but also like the tools of recovery, you know, um, the, the fellowship, the spirituality, you know, the growth that I had already had in learning to stay sober. It was like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing now. You know, I was able to accept it and face it as opposed to like running from it right 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 yeah. escaping yeah 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 i didn't have to escape from it you know and now i got you know uh i got these kids running around harper's about to be a teenager and that's uh, wow uh, but but they're great you know um they uh, the two older ones are both musicians you know they oh, both wow. play piano um oh. the oldest one likes pop music he's into what his mom likes but the <laughs> nine-year-old the nine-year-old knows what's up. <laughs> he <laughs> listens to my music. <laughs> um, but it's it's really cool, you know. They, uh, you know, like uh, my kids. Both both me and my wife. You know, our marriage has lasted longer than either of our parents' marriages. You know, wow. so like to be able to to give them a home where like both parents are here. Yeah, um, it's huge and. You know, they don't know what it's like for daddy to not come home at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they get t- they've gotten told, you know, I love you every single day they've been alive. Mm. Um, it's it's uh it's just so cool, you know. Like they have no doubts in their mind that they're loved, that they're important, that they're valued, that they're. Uh, I don't know. Like it's kind of cool for like a like a fucked up drug addict to be able to do right? that for somebody. You know what right? I mean? Yeah. You know, it's because you're very intentional about your parenting, I would imagine. Right. So having the background that you have, it probably makes you much more, um, you know, you do things with a purpose. And um, whereas I do think, you know, maybe a lot of of the generations before us, um, you know, that you just you you have a baby. Okay, so now you're a parent. But there's so much more to parenting, you know. And so I think, you know, there's, there's something to be said for being very intentional. Do your kids know about, um, that you're in recovery or about any of your past? I know they're still pretty young, but. Yeah. So, so the three-year-old has no clue, obviously. I don't think she, I don't think her brain is developed to understand those concepts. Um, so both my boys have known for a while that I don't, I don't drink. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, for a long time, we told them that I was allergic. Mm -hmm. Um, but doing the work that I do, right? Like I get phone calls all the time from sure. potential clients, from family members. And I very often share a little bit of my story with them. Mm. So they both know that I'm in recovery and awesome. that at one point I had to go to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but only the 11 year old knows some of the details. Sure. Um, and that, you know, and I shared them like, like you were saying very intentionally, um, 
he was having a real tough day and was doing that like shut down. I don't want to talk to anybody thing. Mm-hmm. And I was driving him to soccer practice and I was like, you know what, this is the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just kind of talked to him about why it's important to talk about feelings so that you don't handle them in unhealthy ways. And daddy used mm-hmm. to do it like this and it caused this situation, this situation, he made your grandma cry and, that's why daddy can't drink and doesn't drink. And that's why, um, you know, when you don't want to talk to us, we get so concerned because also Mm. you have my genetics. So like, just like you have blue eyes because of me, you could also have this because of me. Ah. And, and as long as we can talk about things, you know, hopefully you won't go down that same road too. And, um, and of course he said nothing. <laughs> sure. That's a lot. That's a lot for yeah, yeah, him yeah. to take in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, like a couple of days later, he started asking me some questions so that, you know, they know, they know I'm in recovery. They know that I help other people do that. They know that a lot of times I, I I'm, I'm talking to people who are sick. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think they, that's a gift that you've given your, your son to let him know that, you know, that, that you, his father, someone he looks up to and admires has struggled in the past. You know, I don't think we do our kids any favors when we try to make them think that we're perfect because then as soon as they face a struggle, they feel alone in it. You know, what are they going to do? They must be doing something wrong if they're struggling with something. And, you know, so obviously there needs to be, um, you know, a certain level of, of removal, but, but there also needs to be some transparency so that they know that you are real and that when they struggle with something, they can come to you because you've struggled too. And and you can relate to that. Uh, I think that's, that's really awesome that you're able to do that. I, I am so excited about what you guys are doing with recovery unplugged and I'm so excited. I want to come visit sometime and see the facility. I'm just so inspired by the program that you guys have. It's, it's everything that we have been talking about for the past almost four years since we started the Noel family foundation with this idea of creating this environment. And, um, I don't know if you know the story, but it, it all sort of sprang forth from, from my nephew being in treatment and seeing him gravitate towards other musicians, both while he was in, in the program. And then after he left and staying, you know, and just seeing that how powerful that was for him as a musician, how necessary it was to incorporate music into, into his life and into his recovery. And that's really what sort of birthed this whole idea. And so it's hugely important to us, not just to have a place that offers treatment, to musicians that can't afford it, but does it in a way that gives them the best, um, you know, the best potential for a positive outcome and does it in a way that can really reach them in a meaningful way and, and have, um, a permanent effect. And I think that's what you guys are doing. And I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, your mission is, is, it's really, it's, it's on point because when you're going to school for counseling, they teach you this term called cultural competency, right? which means that like whatever community you end up in, right? If it's a white community, black community, Hispanic, you know, you need to understand their culture and their language and adapt what you do to them. Mm. Right. And musicians have a language and a culture. And, um, you know, if the people working with them don't at the very least understand where they're coming from, Mm. uh, I mean, most rehabs, 
don't let you have guitars right? Yeah, <laughs> or, or music at all. Yeah. So, um, no, that's, that's beautiful. And, and one thing that I've gotten the opportunity to do with recovery unplugged is I get to go around and do trainings on, you know, kind of like the basics of the stuff that we do. Right. So, mm-hmm. and you know, I got asked one time, like, you know, you just, you do all this training about what y'all do. Like, isn't that like trade secrets? Like what's to stop somebody from going and like opening up another rehab like this? I'm like, I hope they do. You know, um, that, that, you know, for, for organizations like, like Bradley's house to, you know, if, if there's anything that we do that we can share that can inform you guys or inspire you guys to create something that's going to help somebody else, like, why wouldn't we do that? That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, uh, Joseph, for the listener who's listening to this episode, they've got their earphones in, they're sitting in their living room, and they're glancing across the kitchen table at their 63-year-old dad with the mullet and the iron <laughs> on. Um, and she's thinking, wow, this is, uh, th- this is exactly what I need to look into. How, how yeah. can people find you, reach you, follow you guys, yeah. get in touch? Yeah. Um, so myself and Recovery Unplugged are both super easy to find. Um, I'm on Facebook. You know, Joseph Gordo, you can find me. That's cool. Um, I give <laughs> um, Recovery Unplugged, you know, has a, you can find us on recoveryunplugged.com. We've got a Facebook. We've got an Instagram. Someone's trying to start a TikTok. I don't know if that's going to work <laughs> out, but <laughs> it's on there. Um, I uh, I also have, uh, I mean, I give, pe- I give people my phone number. Like, I don't, you know, I'm really like, like I said earlier, like I'm an awesome. open book. Like anybody yeah. who wants to get a hold of me can, can find me pretty easily um, awesome. online. And I'm, I'm always super happy to help M- much like Tyson. Like yes. if I get a call, you know, if, if they don't have, you know, the resources or the insurance that we're in network with to be able to come to us, you know, that that's still a soul that's been entrusted to me that I yes. need to find and connect with something that's going to fit for them. That's Absolutely. Beautiful. And for our listeners, uh, that is Joseph. It's G O R O D O. Cause I know somewhere there's a listener that's going, honey, where's the grr button on this damn keyboard? <laughs> I think you missed an R. Did you miss an R? You missed an R. You missed an R. Did I? G O R O R D O. There we go. All right, there we go. I got it. So, um, all right, cool, man. It's uh, it's great to know that you guys are out there. And uh, for yes. anyone who's listening, um, you know, check them out and uh, follow them on social media. And if you uh, you know somebody that could benefit from their help, uh, obviously uh, Tyson is my go-to, and uh, and he's had nothing but amazing things to say about you guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, after getting a chance to speak with you, it's uh, it's very clear that you guys are uh, are doing some amazing things. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us yeah. and for being so open and sharing your story because obviously so many people can relate to it. And and hopefully there are people listening that, that connected with what you had to say and it gives them hope. So thank you very much for that. And keep up the great work. You will definitely be hearing from me soon because I am so excited about what you guys are doing and I would really love to be able to you know maybe collaborate in the future or at least like I said come and check out what you're doing you know you guys have have really paved the way and are doing some great work and and I have great respect for that let's do it sounds good thank you so much Joseph we really loved having you on the show tonight please come back sometime we would love to talk with you again 
Anytime. Thank you guys. Yeah, so it was so awesome. Much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Time, All right. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Well, Kelly, I know it seems like almost every week I say it, but once again, you did not disappoint with the guests that you got set up for us today. Somebody who's out there, again, like I said in the beginning of the show, fighting the war right alongside the Noel Family Foundation and all these other organizations, but it was really great to hear about this one. Absolutely. I'm so excited for what they're doing and the program that they've developed. It's just right on point with with everything that we've talked about with Bradley's House and to be able to see uh, you know, an organization that's already doing that and already making an impact with it. Uh, it's just really, really exciting for me. Yeah, it was, uh, and it was great speaking with Joseph. So if you guys are listening, yeah, go ahead and uh, check them out. Like you said, they're on social media. Uh, I know they're on Instagram and on Facebook and, uh, and just give them a like and a follow and, uh, and see what's going on with them. I, I'm sure they're constantly sharing different information. And if you know anybody that could benefit from, from their help, it certainly seems like the, the right place because uh, what they're doing and, and speak with Joseph, it, it was, uh, it was really awesome to, to hear about how they're doing the way they're doing it. Absolutely. And again, their, their uh, website is recoveryunplugged.com. Yeah. Check them out. And don't be shy to check out the knollfamilyfoundation.org. Guys, we talk about it every single week. We are doing this podcast and sharing these interviews and having some fun, uh, but we're doing it so we can get those doors open to Bradley's house. It's been the Noel Family Foundation's goal since day one, and uh, and nothing's changed. You guys can visit, pick up some merchandise. There's some awesome t-shirts and hoodies and uh, socks. And actually, there's a little news on those socks, right, Kelly? There is some news on those socks. We have, uh, we have a new sock coming out from our lovely friends at Merge 4. And I'm super excited about it because it's based on the album artwork from the house that Bradley built. The artwork that Justin Ultisvig created for us. So, um, yeah, it's beautiful. I've seen the socks. They are fabulous. That's the good news. The bad news is that the old ones are no longer available except through the Noel Family Foundation website until our stock is gone. So when they're gone, they're gone for good. So if you love those socks, make sure to go grab yourself a pair before we run out. Limited edition merch is what we're talking about here, guys. Yes. And we we know that the internet is full with a ton of places that you guys can get your Bradley Knoll related merchandise. And uh, just know that when you pick up a shirt from the Knoll Family Foundation, uh, all of those proceeds go towards uh, the goal of getting Bradley's house open so uh, the foundation can start helping these musicians who don't have anywhere else to turn. So um, pick up a t-shirt, buy one for a friend. And uh, of course, there is always the link tree that Anna is so kind to share in the description of every single show. You can click on that and find all of the various ways that you can help and donate a buck or two. And uh, guys, I'm serious when I say that. If everybody that's listening and sharing and enjoying uh, um, the show and the foundation, if we all just pitch in a dollar, uh, it goes a long way. So, um, you know, we, we appreciate if you guys can do that and help out so we can get Bradley's house up and built. And, and that's the ultimate goal here. Absolutely. And, you know, we're getting close every day. And so we really appreciate everything that everybody's done so far and continuing to be a part of this journey with us. As, as you said earlier, it's, you know, we're doing it all together. We couldn't do it alone. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And don't forget about the awesome compilation album, The House That Bradley Built, available at law-records.com. Uh, Yasad and Paul have been guests on the show. Uh, and you guys can find that in our archives. You guys make sure you're subscribing on YouTube to Bradley's House. Uh, Anna, make sure that every single one of these audio podcasts makes it on YouTube available for anybody who doesn't know how to use the app or want to find the app. It's right there on YouTube. If you guys subscribe, it goes a long way for us. You can catch all of our archives. Uh, we had Papa Jim on. We've spoken with Jacob and Miguel and Marshall. Um, we've had some amazing musicians, too many to even name off of the uh, compilation album. Uh, some amazing people from the world of recovery. So go ahead and like and subscribe to that. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and give us a five-star rating if you think that we've gone ahead and deserved it. Uh, and if we haven't, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and then email <laughs> me at bradleyshousepodcast at gmail.com and let me know what we have to do to get that five-star rating because <laughs> that's important to us um, and we good. won't settle that's for true. anything else. So true. Um, we certainly appreciate that. Now, guys, speaking with Joseph today and, and talking about the different things that happen in recovery, um, it kind of got me thinking. And I know that we usually end every single episode of Bradley's House with a song, uh, but today we're going to do something a little different. Um, shared from our good friend Eddie Villa's YouTube page is a phone message recording of your brother, Kelly, um, while he was in a recovery facility. And uh, it just kind of shows all of the emotions and a lot of the personality of Brad, who on the spot writes a song and performs a piece of that as well. Um, we're going to play that at the end of this. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Again, you can follow the Noel Family Foundation on all forms of social media, and you can follow the Bradley's House group on Facebook. I'm Jared Orr. She's Kelly Noel. We're out of time. You don't have to go home, but it's time to leave Bradley's house. This is Bradley. Bradley. You know, uh, the lead uh, singer, dude, from uh, Sublime uh, Guy. Um, you know what, guys? Um, I don't want to hear no fucking hype. Don't believe it. I wrote a new fucking tune. The new record's going to be coming out. It's called I Don't Want No More Friends. It goes, I don't want no more friends. I tell you me. I tell you. Do, 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 do. Hey, I don't want to well, terrify you, oh Lord, and then them try. Mm-hmm. It will try in every way, Lord, to run your life. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, okay, I don't know who's out. I think this is Steve Mattis's pad. I got right here. Um, um, this guy right here, uh, his name is Nicholas what? Nicholas something. He wants, he wants to do promotion. And, uh, he's a good young kid. And, uh, he, uh, he'll fucking, uh, I mean, he'll do anything. He'll fucking lick stamps. He'll, uh, he'll, uh, do, uh, fucking designing. He can do, uh, spreadsheet. We're processing. Right now, he's fucking macking up. He's a fucking hound. A hound dog. Um, as you guys all know, I'm a... I, uh, I quit all that shit, so I don't want to hear none of that fucking shit. I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, uh, I... That's 
what I'm pretty much fucking into. Okay, guys? <laughs> and also, I like leaving uh, long messages, taking up all of people's tapes so that they don't have any more room to bone shake brotherhood my fucking ass. Anyways, um, you know how it is being a uh, heroin addict like me. Uh, when you miss, you're really, you're, you're fucking, you're, all the money goes down the drain because, you know, so I just missed right now, and uh, so I need I need extra money, and I need it right now. And I also called to tell you that uh, whatever show you had with Sublime this weekend, uh, we can't do it anymore. Uh, we fucking, um, just because we don't feel like it. Um, and uh, and uh, we're suing you, too. Uh, fuck! Where are you? I'm fucking bored. Michael Happel and uh, Eric Wilson are li- living the good life in Mexico right now, uh, and all the money that uh, that I'm fucking making them, and I'm, they leave me back here to write the the new record. But I'm writing it. I got the new record. It goes. Uh, if you ever see me rock, you think I was a superstar, perpetrating a Jamaican trying to make a dollar. So rock me tonight for old time's sake. Hey, hey, rock with me, rock with me. Because I don't want no more friends. I tell you, they are the ones who would terrify you, oh Lord. And then they'll try, and they'll try in every way, Lord, to run your life. And I don't want no more friends. I tell Bradley, Bradley, you know, uh, the lead, uh, singer, dude, from, uh, Sublime, uh, guy, um, you know what, guys, um, I don't want to hear no fucking hype, don't believe it, I wrote a new fucking tune, the new record.